Hello, everyone. This is Michael Jaco with Unleashing Intuition Secrets, the podcast. Join us as we reveal how you can become the master of your reality. Hello, everyone. It's Michael Jaco with Unleashing Intuition Secrets. Joined once again by Truther Mike. Uh, he's incognito. He's uh, a survivor of uh, arachnoiditis. Uh, we've had several shows on, um, you know, pain management and so forth. Uh, today, uh, we have a, a very special guest, uh, Dr. Tennant. Dr. Tennant, and I'm going to read uh, his background, quite an extensive and amazing background. So Forrest Tennant, MD, doctor of uh, public health, is an internist and addictionologist who has spent his medical career researching and treating intractable pain. He managed the Verac Intractable Pain Clinics in West Covina, California from 1975, originally focused on cancer pain and post-polio disease, to 2018. Dr. Tennant served as, as the Editor-in-Chief of Practical Pain Management from 2007 through 2017 and continues to hold an Ametrius honor on the editorial board. Today, he leads the Tenet Foundation and its arachnoiditis research and education project. Dr. Tenet is a member of the American Academy of Pain Medicine, the Academy of Integrative Pain Medicine, the American Pain Society, and the American Society of Addiction Medicine. He has authored over 300 scientific articles and books. He firmly served as a medical officer in the U.S. Army and U.S. Public Health Service and was a consultant to the FDA, National Institute on Drug Abuse, and Drug Enforcement Administration, as well as to the LA Dodgers, National Football League, and NASCAR. Forrest Tennant, MD, Dr. Uh, Public Health, is a member of the Practical Pain Management Editorial Board. Dr. Tennant, wow, what what amazing credentials you have. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, Truth of Mike is, is in the background. He's, he's joining us as well. Oh, yeah, right here. All right, very good. So you've you've written some uh, some very interesting books. We're gonna uh, I'd like to kind of like go into that. Uh, you just had a uh, the strange medical saga of JFK. Uh, it's basically a book about JFK's arachnoiditis and other pain. So uh, this is this is far reaching. It goes back quite some time. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Well, first off, uh, uh, I. I been involved. I've written two other books about famous people. Uh, one about Howard Hughes and one Elvis Presley. Wow! And I was the government's medical expert after Howard Hughes died, so I have his records. Wow! And then I wrote the book on Elvis Presley because I'm the only one I think who has his autopsies and all his records because I was involved in his doctor's case after Elvis died. Mm. Now, I never met any of these three people. Now, as far as John F. Kennedy goes. Uh, if you ask the average person about John F. Kennedy, about his health problems, they'll say, well, didn't he have a back problem from PT-109, or didn't he have Addison's disease, or uh, we don't really believe that he was shot by Harvey Oswald or some other conspiracy. But they really don't realize or know much about his health history. And in fact, uh, when he was alive, neither did his doctors, except he was awfully sick right from his birth. And even though, it, it, what's interesting, of the three people I've written about, John F. Kennedy's the only one I ever met. And I actually met him when I was in college. And then I actually trained under one of his doctors, believe it or not. 
but uh, and I happen to have been aware of the scientific research involving the conditions he had after he died. And there's uh, so what I've done on this book uh, is I've taken there's some excellent medical uh, stories, if you want, or st articles about his health that have done by some of the nation's best historians and medical investigators. And so what I've really done is put together what they've done. So I can't take a lot of credit for the book other than I put together a story that starts with his birth and ends. And I think the American public will find it very interesting and learn a lot about what really happened to him because there's really quite a story there. It turns out that John F. Kennedy was born with a very rare disease, uh, and it goes by the name of autoimmune polyglandular syndrome. What that means is you're born with an autoimmune disease that starts destroying your thyroid, your adrenals, your pancreas, your testicles, and all your other glands. And then along the way, he was injected into his spinal column with a myodel dye, which probably gave him arachnoiditis, at least symptomatically. And uh, Dr. Charles Burton, who was one of the pioneers that discovered adhesive uh, uh, arachnoiditis, at least arachnoiditis caused by dye put in the spinal canal, recognized that that's what he had. And there was a Dr. Lee Mandel recognized his genetic disease, and a Dr. Charles Burton recognized his arachnoiditis. And uh, Dr. Burton actually was able to acquire an x-ray taken in the 1940s about John F. Kennedy, which shows this dye right in his spinal canal. From a medical point of view, it's an awful picture. Uh, and that's why he suffered so badly. But uh, that uh, even though he suffered badly, he had excellent doctors, and he actually was in the best health of his whole life in the year he was assassinated. Hmm. And he actually, how he managed to survive, a lot of people don't know this, but he was given last rights twice before he became president. So they tried to keep a lot of this secret, and you can understand that. But it's a very fascinating story. I do think the people who uh, love America and want to know how world America is all about We'll find uh, a lot of very good things and a lot of things that you wondered about if you read the book. It's, it's a great book. Yeah, and it's uh, you have it on Amazon. So uh, just recently released. Uh, it's in Kindle hardcover and paperback. Uh, so it looks like a very, very uh, fascinating book. Well, I, I never would have known uh, this was uh, rachnoiditis has been going back uh, that that long, uh, back that far. One of the things that's uh, not appreciated. The healthcare system, as everybody knows, is almost dysfunctional at times and really controversial and has problems that we can spend days discussing. And nobody quite knows where some of those problems came from. But behind the scenes, and I do think COVID has done one thing, and that is it has obscured an awful lot of good research and a lot of good things that have happened in the medical field. And uh, these diseases that John F. Kennedy had were totally unknown to his practicing doctors or his family. They weren't discovered. I think Dr. Mandel discovered that he had this genetic disease in 2004 about. So that would have been some 30, 40 years after he died. So science and medical science says one thing about it. It marches on. If you look at medical science going back over the centuries, 
it's a stepwise process. It gets better all the time because that's just the human desire, if you will. So, uh, yeah, I've got get a lot of credit for a lot of things. Uh, uh, Ten years from now, I may be forgotten about because you know, new things will come online and obviate and replace the things that have come before. And that's the good thing about medical science. They keep getting better. We keep uh, living better. And But uh, nobody gives you any credit for that anymore. Uh, it's so controversial. And there's so many problems that those things are all, all that's talked about. You never hear about anything positive. But there's a lot of positive things going on right now. Oh, good. Yeah, definitely. So even, um, you know, like you, like you mentioned, uh, you have a book called The Strange Medical Saga of Elvis Presley. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? And if, and if Mike, you want to jump in at any time, please feel free. Yes. The, the, I'm so glad you asked this question. I'll tell you what. If you take these three famous icons, mm-hmm. The three of them had the major serious intractable pain problems of the day. Now, Elvis Presley, uh, everybody knows about Elvis, and, you know, of course, I was a great Elvis fan, and most people are. Yeah. I uh, can't begrudge that. And people, the first thing they think about Elvis is throw something negative that, oh, he was a good singer, but he was a drug addict, and he took pills, and he did this and that. Well, what a lot of people don't realize is he also was born with a fairly rare genetic disease, hmm. and it's called Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. Now, today, that's one of the things that plague us physicians who are trying to do something about really severe pain. Now, people have known for years that Elvis Presley could do all these weird stunts, uh, all these things on stage, uh, bend his arm, what have you. That's because he had these hypermobile joints. But those hypermobile joints are associated with internal deterioration of tissues. And so I, I think you could, with, he was a bona fide uh, drug dependent, drug abusing type personality. I think nobody questions that. Uh, but the other thing he was, he was very sick. Mm-hmm. And he had this Eilers Danlow syndrome. And his whole history, uh, we actually have in the book some pictures of his uh, ancestors. And they also have some of the same features that he has. Now, one thing about Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, these are tend to be very handsome, have very smooth skin, uh, good athletes, uh, very personable people. And Elvis uh, fits right in. But uh, uh, all those gyrations that he could do, only Elvis could do those. But he also became quite ill. I admit it from a doctor's point of view. It's a fascinating medical saga also. And he also had the very best doctors around. A lot of people didn't realize that uh, John F. Kennedy, Elvis Presley, and Howard Hughes were all very wealthy people who were able to hire the best doctors of the day. That's mm. not well appreciated. A lot of those doctors were condemned. A lot of them charged, uh, disciplined by medical boards, but these were the best doctors of the day, and they could afford to get the best, and they did. And I think the one thing that all three of them had in common, and a lot of people would be shocked to hear this, but these uh, guys have managed to have the best doctors take the best medicines and the best science available at the time because they could afford the best doctors, and they lived uh, uh, for a long time. Now, Howard Hughes had this terrible condition today that we call RSD or chronic regional pain syndrome. Uh, 
uh, and he had, he he crashed the plane in 1946, broke all his ribs, his hips. Uh, was lucky to get out alive. Two thirds of his body's burned, and then they wondered why he was a recluse. <laughs> so, uh, and he lived to age 70. But he also had the very best doctors and took some of the very best medications. All three of these models uh, had to take uh, opioid drugs. They had to take uh, what pain medicines were available, and frankly, they all three of them got better care for their medical conditions than the average person in America today, I will say that. And that's the tragedy, that those three people years ago got better care than the average person with intractable pain today. Yeah. I, I know you've been involved in helping people, and you've kind of gotten a lot of pressure on you, unfortunately. Uh, what, where do you see this going in the future? Because there's a lot of uh, disinformation, I believe, that's come down. Uh, since I've, I've met uh, Truth or Mike, he's really informed me. I, I thought that opioids, yeah, they're bad. Take them away. And now we're finding out that was not a good move uh, for a lot of people and, and for good reason that it should be coming back. The misunderstanding about opioids, the misunderstanding about the degrees of pain. There, there are different degrees of pain, mild, moderate, severe, and catastrophic. And catastrophic sometimes goes by the name intractable, uh, sometimes goes by the name palliative. Uh, but you get a certain number of people, a small percentage like like Mike's, that are really tragic there. The pain is so bad, and we now know that a lot of that has to do with metabolic or biochemical changes in the brain. And those are tragic cases, not poorly understood, and the government hasn't understood it, medicine hasn't understood it. And doctors like myself who tried to treat these, yeah, we've had our own uh, misfortunes and our own pressures. But I think a lot of that also has changed. Uh, and there is a realization now that we have this subgroup of people who are terribly severe, need palliative care. And I think for, on, in most parts of the country uh, that a lot of people are getting excellent care right now. Uh, it's getting better in a lot of the parts of the country. So it's a little hard to... To globalize this whole thing because uh, what they're doing in Maine is darn good, for example. Uh, what they may be doing in Florida may not be so hot, and in some other states, horrible. Uh, but so it's spotty. Uh, so it's a little hard to generalize what's going on, but I do know uh, some states, some medical boards, some medical professionals uh, that are doing a super job. Uh, dosages are not being restricted. They're treating it just right, doing a better job, as good as I ever did. Or, or can do today. And also we're getting a lot of new information and that's where I think I've been working on developing some new things and it's paying off. We've got some new things to offer for the first time in years. Uh, so I do know that there is great condemnation, great hostility over the, against the federal government and a lot of the regulations and the guidelines and let's face it, you do have a problem with the federal government relative to the practicing doctor. And for some years now, they have been trying to make sure that the practicing doctor has more and more restrictions and is, is more and more limited in what they can do. For example, let's talk about the, the what I call the pain constituency, the patients and the families and the legislators who want to help the pain patients. This is only a, a, a big, long trend. Now, a law around 1980, they restricted on, they took all the laboratory testing away from doctors. Doctors could only do a small number of tests in their practice. They took it out. They, they call those regulations the CLIA regulation. 
clinical laboratory regulation. So they took out the ability of the practicing doctor to do many laboratory tests. He could do a cholesterol test, maybe a white count, and a few things a day. Then, go jump on forward 10 years, they outlawed fundamentally doctors dispensing medications in their own office. In other words, doctors uh, in the country, some made their living by dispensing penicillin or uh, cholesterol drugs, antibiotics, and those were taken away. And where the doctor could no longer dispense those in his office, and it and that really hurt in some areas because some areas like rural areas, Indian reservations, the ghetto areas, doctors that were very charitable would stock medicines down there. They'd stock a big bottle of penicillin and give it away free. Well, you know that's against the law now. Think about that. Some states you can't do that anymore. Mm. You can't even give out a penicillin. Uh, then along came all the regulations to where if you wanted to give a shot of something, you had to have an RN, you got to have this. You had they, they regulated what personnel could do things, and that the doctor had to be standing there. And this affected greatly such things as daycare centers, uh, weight control centers, uh, a lot of uh, centers like that. So, and so all of a sudden now they're restricting opioids, and if you want a high dose opioids, what the government is saying and Pain patients have this wrong. The government's not against high-dose opioids. You can have all the opioids you want, but you've got to do it in a pump. Oh. Okay? They didn't say you couldn't have them. They're not against opioids. What they're saying is if you want the high-dose opioids, we want to control you and control the doctors who do it. Mm. And so you can have all, if you want 1,000 milligrams of morphine or uh, fentanyl, fine. They can put it in a pump. And you can have it, okay? Now, if you want to take it orally, you need to go to your local methadone clinic or your local suboxone clinic. What we don't want is practicing doctors out there giving out anything more than a smidgen uh, of opioid. And they're telling the pharmacists the same thing. Well, you know, no, we can't have pain, pain pharmacies. You've had throughout the country certain pharmacies Go ahead and specialize in stocking opioids. And that's where you went if you needed an odd prescription or a high dose. Now the government is restricting those. In other words, this idea that the CDC regulations and these regulations are bad, and they are, they're almost, they're a tragic, laughable mess, to be honest about it. But the big picture is th this mistake that they're against opioids and against pain patients is not correct. They want to control how you get your medicines and who does it, just like they're doing with weight control programs, birth control programs, primary care, etc. So it's a long trend of government wanting to tell the practicing doctor exactly what they can do and can't do. Now, whether you agree with that politically or not is a, is a personal judgment. Okay? And you have, and frankly, from what I can see, the country's divided over this issue on how much control you're going to allow the practicing doctor to have, okay? And uh, my my problems with uh, the government fundamentally boiled down to, I ran a nonprofit charitable clinic. We didn't carry malpractice, didn't charge fees. No, they don't want that. No, they want the insurance companies want the business, hospitals want the business. So they're very picky that they don't even want doctors out there in a shopping center 
or practicing on their own. Uh, they want you in groups that they want these restrictions. So opioids are just part of a bigger restrictive picture. And again, this idea that the government doesn't want you to have opioids is not true. They want to know who's giving it and how it's to be given. Okay. Hmm. Well, if, if I can, those patients out there who feel that they should have access to whatever they want orally by their local doctor, all I can say is that's a long-term trend that they're bucking. Hmm. And I don't know whether they can ever advocate and get that by regulation or law. It, the government has shown no, once they have set forth the laboratory regulations, the dispensing regulations, personnel requirements, malpractice requirements, I've never seen a back off of this in my 50 years of medical practice. Wow. Hmm. So if I, I can do, jump... Go ahead, Mike. Yeah, I was going to say, it just shows the, the government overreach just getting into absolutely... They just want to control absolutely everything. And, you know, as the old saying goes, follow the money. So I want to ask you for us, can you see, you know, who would you think would be benefiting the most financially from all of this? Hey, one of the problems we have with opioids is that you have too many powerful groups feel that opioids prescribed by practicing doctors is taking money out of their, their hide. Now, let's, let's go over them. Let's not kid ourselves about this. And the first thing, the first knee-jerk reaction is they say it's the insurance company. Well, they're high on the limit. Yeah. The second big one are those medical device companies. They make all those implanted pumps. Put an implanted stimulator or an implanted pump in somebody today is hundred to $150,000. That makes a lot of money for the surgery center, the hospital, the pharmacy, the doctor. I mean, hey, everybody's piling in. And most of all, those medical device companies that make those, they're... Their, their pocketbooks are wide open on clinical contributions. Uh, most of those those companies are in Boston or Chicago or somewhere like that. So you've got medical device company. You've got the insurance company. You've got the, the your pharmaceutical companies. They want to try to develop, uh, uh, you know, what they call biologics and other drugs to replace opioids. They, they look at opioids as taking their ability away to make new drugs. So you've got not those people. Uh, I don't know how much the cartels out of Mexico and China these days are uh, are players, uh, but I do know that historically the those cartels have viewed pain patients as firm assets or clientele to buy their street drugs. So you've got those. Now the other one that might uh, you, you might let's call it like it is your local hospital. Uh, as you quit watching this show and drive by your local hospital. They're not, a, they're not for opioids. They don't really want opioids used post-surgically. Why? Opioids keep people out of hospitals. They cut down surgery. They cut down medical costs. This, there's another myth out there that people want to, that we want to reduce medical costs. No, they want to shift costs. Insurance companies have got to raise their prices every year just to pay their executives and their staff, So, and they also want to take care of their friends, which is the hospital industry. So uh, doctors today, they used to be the American Medical Association was a powerful group. It's not anymore. Why? The doctors are split. What I'm telling you here today, you can find three other doctors probably disagree. So you're not getting any uniformity in opinion from physicians themselves. They're all divided into these camps. 
So you've got all of these different camps uh, that don't like opioids. Oh, and we've also forgot another one, the universities. Mm. Okay. The universities pay all these people. They have all these professors, uh, and they they have huge budgets, and they view uh, opioids as taking money away from them because they run big hospitals, and they do research. And so opioids have got all kinds of enemies out there. I don't know how you quite overcome all of them, and I don't know who's on first base. I mean, if you were to tell me that one of these groups is doing more lobbying in Washington than the other one, so be it. There's a lot of them out there. And so when you get into dealing with opioids, it's almost like oil and water. Society can't deal with them. Wars are fought over water, oil, and opioids. Remember that, historically. You're right. So no. Society can't can't deal with those three things. Okay? And so we're, we're caught up in all of this. And exactly uh, where it goes, I don't know. Except I've got one bit of advice for pain patients. Try to stay up with the latest. Try to, we've got new things coming out. We've had a couple of breakthroughs lately. Uh, try to take the latest ones. I, I just don't think you can count on maybe having opioids the way you did in the past. Uh, you're going to have to go with a pump. You're going to have to go to a Suboxone program. Uh, I just don't know whether you're going to be able to continue with what you have. There's just, there are too many adversaries out there. I don't agree with it. Uh, I mean, I think that uh, the local physicians ought to be able to use opioids for anybody who needs it. Uh, uh, but uh, my view is, is, I don't know whether it's the majority view these days or not. Uh, there's just an awful lot of people who just don't believe, frankly, they don't believe in keeping people alive. They they don't believe in palliative care. They, they don't believe that used to be in this country that uh, there's the... That I've heard it when I started off. There was the mantra, no one should die in pain. Today, I get the feeling that a lot of people don't agree with that. Mm. But I, I, I take the old position, uh, the old Christian position that uh, people shouldn't have to die in pain and they should be able to live out their lifespan normally with whatever it's worth and live comfortably during that time and have a good quality of life and, and contribute to society. My view is no longer the universal view. Yeah, well, let me say this. I mean, you know, it seems like it really comes down to is profit over people. And uh, let me ask something about the pain pump. Does it make sense to you if you have a patient that has no history of alcohol or drug abuse or addiction, does it, does it make sense to force that person to have a pain pump implanted if, if they can, if they've proven to take opioids responsibly? And isn't there a danger with pain pumps with possible infection when they're refilling them as well? Oh, yeah. All those things are there. I mean, pain pumps have terrible complications, and they and and they soak the receptors in the brain, your endorphin receptors, your serotonin receptors, your dopamine receptors, constantly. They don't give them a vacation. And so after a while, you can actually lose your ability to control pain with that pump at all. Wow. There is... You may have heard of opioid hyperalgesia. What you haven't heard about is opioid poisoning. And that means you can knock out your receptors to where the pump doesn't work anymore. Mm. And there's no way to bring back your ability to make opioids work anymore. So, And we see these things. So uh, your, your question is that you're, you're talking logically here now. You're talking clinically. 
You're talking common sense. You're talking about what any fifth grader would come up with, Mike. I, I, I expected better of you. Fifth graders know what you're talking about. It's just that you're running into economics and politics and biases. Everybody knows what you're talking about, but they're not going to accept it because there are other issues out there that they feel, I hate to say it, they feel are should, should predominate over the common sense of who gets a pump. Now, when pumps first came out, in order to get one, you had to have a psychological evaluation. You had to prove that you were stable, that you could manage it. You had to, and the doctors were in one place. Today, one of the biggest problems we have is a doctor will put the pump in and then retire or move away and leave the person with the pump in and know where to go. Hmm. It's a terrible problem. Think about that. They you get the pump in, and it's going to be filled every couple of weeks, and you got nowhere to go. Now, this is happening all over the country. Where where do they insert the pump in, in into your body? Where is it at? It's right down at your tailbone. Mm. It's it's put right in the spinal cord, right wow. in, right in the spinal canal. Yeah, mm. and uh, and they're godsends for some people, no question about it. Uh, there's complications with others, uh, and uh, and there some doctors manage them better than others. However, there's a huge push to put the pumps in by the hospitals your pain specialists, your medical device makers, and the body politic. Hello, this is Michael Jaco. If you want to learn more on how to unleash your own intuition, go to michaelkjaco.com, unleashingintuition.com, where you can find my courses on how to become the master of your own reality. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, well, and that's the funny thing. I mean, you take a patient like me. I'm 57 years old. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I have no history of alcohol or drug abuse. And I've been a pain patient for 20 years, and I've proven to take my, my medications responsibly. And yet, that's all these doctors want to do is take them out of my hands and force me to get a pain pump installed. And it's just it's just ludicrous. It's, uh, you know, when I think of the complications, and it really just comes down to the profit over people. And um I guess this is what you're saying. It's just showing everything I've been saying in the previous shows. And it's it's really quite staggering that our medical system has, has gotten to the point that it has gotten with politics and money over people. Mike, uh, I'm going to tell you, give you a couple of bits of advice and tell you one of the things I'm going to do about your case. What you say is absolutely correct. Unfortunately, you're like a lot of people out there you're seeing a pain doctors whose goal is to get you onto that pump, and they're not going to give you oral medication. They don't even know that there is a high-powered dilated injectable, which is supposed to be used for end-stage arachnoiditis and other palliative cases, and they don't use it like they're supposed to. It's the one alternative for the pump. Uh, in your case, you've got to try to find a new doctor. You've got to try to uh, get a new regimen. And, and what I'm going to do tonight, I'm going to say a prayer for you. I don't quite know what you do. Uh, I'm just being frank about all this. And I, I think it's time, and I, I know some of the things I'm saying today aren't going to be accepted well. I know that they're controversial. But I, I think it's time we get the cards out here on the table. Okay? Right. Let's not kid ourselves that things are going to get better next week. In some states and in some places like where you are, I don't know that that's going to happen. Yeah, it's scary. And just so the audience knows, the Dr. Tennant here has known me for a while. Uh, he knows my situation. He's reviewed my MRIs. Um, 
So it's just not somebody he's met over the phone. He's seen my MRIs. He knows my whole medical situation. So when he says that, it's uh, coming from uh, seeing the evidence. Yeah. Well, again, uh, you, I think you are. Uh, this is a good time on the show. I, I, I can't. I just got to make sure everybody knows this. We've had a group of entrepreneurial scientists in recent years start working with something called polypeptides. And without going into the biochemistry and what they all amounts to, they are a real breakthrough. Now, the public knows more about polypeptides than they think because insulin is a polypeptide. Now, peptides are chains of amino acids, basically little building blocks of protein. Now, there's 25 of them that the body uses, and some good entrepreneurials, I got to give them credit, and this is one of the nice things about free enterprise medicine. These guys and gals have gone in their laboratories, started putting these chains together, and have come out with about 30 of them that look like have great merit, and two of them I'm now recommending and making it first-line treatment for everybody that has pain every day of their life. They need to know about these two polypeptides. One's called KPV, what's called HP157. Now, I don't know why they named it. Okay, I don't have any financial interest in them except I've got an emotional interest in them, and I've got a clinical interest in them, and that is this is the first breakthrough in serious pain control that we've had since opioids. Wow. I think that's it. This is our first real advance. Now, you got to take these like insulin with a little small subcutaneous syringe and, and inject them under your skin, but uh, in your case, you need to learn about those. In other words, what I'm hoping is that everybody who is in your mask can take these and get your opioid needs down to where maybe a general practitioner or a nurse practitioner can prescribe. At this point, it does look like the government is leaving alone nurse practitioners, PAs, osteopaths, naturopaths, MDs, who are keeping their dosages down under around 50 or 60 milligrams of morphine equivalents. That would be the equivalent of around four Percocets a day, four Vicodin a day, a couple of Oxycodone a day. Uh, and and with these peptides, a lot of people are going to be able to do that. But until we've had these peptides, this could not be done. Okay. And there's uh, companies, uh, there's three or four of them that have sprung up. I give these people great credit uh, for inventing this. I'm going to be missionary about it and promote them, mm. but because uh, they really do work. And I don't know any of these people. I just was aware of their work and decided to start testing some of them. And these two do work. First time I've seen anything that consistently gets you good relief uh, since opioids. Low-dose naltrexone helps a lot. What they call palmitoy ethanolamide does. Some of these things help a little bit, but nothing like the peptides. These polypeptides are a great advance. Uh, I guarantee you that Dr. Travell, who treated, saved Dr. John Kennedy's life, boy, she'd have been on top of this in a flash. She was way ahead of her time. Uh, so uh, we give this a go. That's, that's one thing I think you could do practically. And right now, uh, you can order these things from these companies and learn how to give yourself the shots and, uh, and, and get going with them. I recommend it highly. Well, the, that's very encouraging. And thank you very much. And I appreciate the prayer, too. Uh, now, you said there was, uh, when was it, KPV? Yeah, KPV, uh, and it's a chain of three amino acids, uh, and, and uh, the public will learn these things. It's lysine, prolate, and valine, and the HP157 has a lot of different amino acids. And again, these are just good, 
scientists who were interested, thought they might work, started experimenting, and they've got about 30 of them under trial. And so I think there'll be another one or two that'll come forward. But right now we have these two, and you can't hurt yourself with them. They're they're safe, and and they're uh, proven quite effective. So I am encouraging everybody who's having this opioid problem, uh, pitch in. Well, for example, uh, literally about three hours ago, I got a call from a physician friend of mine that in his community there were three or four pharmacies. He's in a big state, and there are three or four pharmacies that prescribed all the pain opioids. Well, the government has now shut all that down. They've told the supplier, McKesson, they can no longer distribute to those pharmacies. So the government is making sure that, that there are no, that people also don't go to pharmacies in mass. In other words, they don't want any pharmacy over having six or 10 high-dose pain patients. And so they want that spread out also. It's going to hurt some people, I'm afraid. But let's do what we can. I don't agree with all of it, but this, again, I, I can't impress upon people enough. Starting back in around 1980, the government started taking everything away from the practicing doctor and started making it very clear what doctors could do and not do. And remember one other thing, an America better face. Malpractice carriers may not insure doctors who prescribe opioids. Hmm. Okay. So I, I'm looking at... Uh... I, I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, promise for from peptides to uh, copper peptides. I, I take a, uh, 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 like a, we call it the uh, the patch, which basically has a copper, pep, a copper peptide on it. And it basically, uh, you know, activates your stem cells, um, you know, helps you reproduce, you know, and, and activate your stem cells. So here it is, uh, KPV peptide. KPV. Uh-huh. And they, uh, those those are one there, and you've got BPC one fifty seven. That's the other one. I may have said HPC. It's BPC one fifty seven. That one and your KPV. People are taking them together, and they're getting uh, uh, great results. And, and their biochemical mechanism uh, is uh, looks like it's uh, got multiple effects. And I won't won't go into it all in detail, except we kind of know how it works. And it's a new scientific breakthrough as well as a clinical breakthrough. Highly recommend it. These are inexpensive. And uh, I want to make it very clear. I don't have any financial interest in them. I'm just excited to see people have something they can go to in addition to their opioids. And hopefully we can get people at least some care. Yeah, no, that's very encouraging and very much appreciated. And I'm going to get right on that immediately. Thank you, Dr. Jenner. You're sure welcome, and uh, if somebody doesn't know, they can write my foundation. Uh, uh, incidentally, our email is tenantfoundation92 at gmail.com. Email us if you want. We'll try to send something to you on how to get these things. Okay. Yeah, that's fantastic. And let me see if I get their website here. I had it before. See if I can pull it back up. So, Mike, do you have uh, any other questions? Um, well, it, um, we can touch on uh, one thing. I'll maybe get his opinion on this in our previous shows. I had mentioned um, that, uh, you know, I feared with, you know, about these injections causing arachnoiditis and how when I had mine done that wrecked me back in 2014, there were maybe only one out of 10 doctors uh, that were uh, pain management doctors that were doing them. And nowadays it's nine out of 10 
pain management doctors, and that seems to be their go-to. So, I mean, if this, you know, I fear that um, if this is ever properly diagnosed with, with all these injections being done, uh, that we may have an epidemic of arachnoiditis in a few years here. Before us, what's your thoughts on that? Um, the, I'm not going to disagree with a single word you said. What we are finding out is that uh, arachnoiditis doesn't occur with any one thing. But if you have an autoimmune disease, you have three or four slip discs, uh, you've got a, what they call a tarloff cyst, and then you have an epidural injection on top of that. You're just a sitting duck. You get adhesive arachnoiditis. Wow. Uh, the people who do uh, these, some of these epidurals think they can just do these things willy-nilly. But it is very clear, and the data is very clear, that if you're going to take an epidural injection, including one for delivering your baby, right, you take a risk of adhesive arachnoiditis. There's no two ways about it. Okay. A lifetime of pain from that point on. Wow. Yeah, and uh, and and arachnoid. Let me tell you why I decided to study adhesive arachnoiditis. I was aware of fibromyalgia, and I was aware of carpal tunnel syndrome, and I was aware of regional arteritis, and I knew that somehow these conditions were all connected to this horrible disease. Mm. And I knew that adhesive arachnoiditis was emerging about 10 years ago to be the number one cause of really severe intractable pain. It was bypassing cancer, uh, arthritic conditions, pancreatitis, uh, interstitial cystitis, uh, sickle cell. It was becoming literal number one as the serious condition causing intractable pain. So I decided to start putting my efforts there, and it is it has paid off. Uh, and uh, we we found out years ago that uh, to control it, you needed to take a drug called Ketorolac plus a, a, a corticosteroid called methylprednisolone. Uh, and so we've had some good re good results. At least uh, we're, we're keeping people alive, and we're not these peptides are going to be a huge uh, addition. But uh, so uh, you know, I come in contact with people every day that that need need the pump, need high dose opioids, they need everything. Because if you let adhesive arachnoiditis get out of control, it's terrible. In the 1800s, it was called the devil's disease. Mm. Okay. In other words, you it's the worst disease you can have because it just kind of eats you alive. Uh, first off, it's pain you can't stand, and then your bowel goes, your sex life goes, your bladder goes, then you can't walk, then you're confined to bed, your nutrition doesn't work anymore, and you just wither away and die at a much shorter age than you should have. Okay. Not a sudden death. It's sort of torturous death. Hmm. So. So anyway, we don't. No one has to be in that position anymore, right now. And with the peptides and some of these other, uh, what we call uh, regeneration hormones, between the regeneration hormones and the peptides and the pain relief medications, people are getting some help. So we've made a lot of headway uh, in, in this. In this, and I'm, and and let me tell you one other thing. And I want again, since you're giving me an opportunity here, Mike, <laughs> there is this idea that our doctors and our nurse practitioners in this country are second rate. Let me tell you something. They're the smartest, and I even think caring, when, when, across the country. 
We have doctors in every community. We have nurse practitioners. And this new group of people called naturopaths or dynamite, uh, the osteopathic schools are saving us. If we didn't have them, we wouldn't have primary care doctors. But we have a lot of things going on at the low levels. Now, nobody gives these people any credit. Uh, the local plumber is making a lot more money. But these are people like ministers. They're dedicated. They want to be there. They're working under all these restrictions. I come from the area where you made a little money at medicine. You don't make much money now. But if you can pay your bills, uh, hallelujah. Uh, and when the government comes in to investigate, they ruin a doctor's ability or a nurse practitioner's ability to make a living. So they just have to shut down. But uh, that said, just like a lot of the clergy in this country, they get no credit, don't make much money. They're unsung heroes, but uh, they're doing a lot. You know, we give the first responders a lot of credit after 9-11. Somebody needs to start giving our primary care doctors and nurse practitioners, naturopaths, uh, some of your chiropractors doing dynamite work out there. So this idea that we don't have a solid, good base of medical practice is not true. They're, they're first class out there. They're uh, they're smarter and, and better trained than, than my group. Well, yeah, I, I think we have some very good doctors out there. Problems are just their their hands being tied, and it's it's not. And the and the other thing is, it's not just the pain patients that are suffering. Uh, you know, when you look at what the DEA has done to some really good doctors trying to help the patients out there, they've destroyed their lives and their. I mean, you you had your own situation too, didn't you, with them, with what this. DEA's taking taking these CDC guidelines and trying to turn them into law and just just destroying doctors' careers, good doctors' careers. Oh yeah, they they've gone right down the line and tried to attack everybody and what have you, and they, they seem to be hex bent on wiping out opioids. Okay, in other words, you've got a great medical profession over here who's capable, but you've got a, and it's not just the federal government now. Remember those state medical boards probably do more damage than DEA ever thought about. And so you, you've got this other other pressure. Uh, where it goes, I don't know, Mike. I, I don't see the federal government back at all. Let me say one other thing, too, that I'm going to challenge you with a question. Has anybody watching this show ever seen a top-flight, high-level elected official in the House of Representatives or the U.S. Senate, or the White House, ever say, no one should have to die in pain? You ever hear any one of those politicians ever say, people that have intractable pain really shouldn't have to suffer in this great country of ours? You ever heard that? No, you haven't. No, that's a tragedy. It's a tragedy. you got to remember, those people run CDC. DEA and CDC are just puppets for those people. Mm -hmm. They work for those politicians. People forget that, and they want to blame an administrative agency that reports directly to the president or to the Senate or somebody else. But I'm never—I'm very disappointed that we've not had anybody on either political party come forward and just, out of a decency, humanitarian spirit, say people really shouldn't have to live their life in severe, debilitating pain or die in pain. I'd like to hear that statement. That's all. Well, you and me both, and not just the public, but what about our troops that went out there and put their lives on the line to defend this country have been blown to pieces, 
and are experiencing the same kind of levels of pain that people like I am. And, you know, and there are some of them, their only option is opioids and things like that. And not a single senator, congressman, represent anywhere is sticking up for even the troops. No. And in fact, this idea that they want to restrict opioids for people that are in the VA hospital. And again, I'm every night I say a little prayer for all those guys and gals. Yeah, I remember I started my career as an Army medical officer during Vietnam. And I donated a lot of my time to VAs and military stuff. And I, for them to make, even make that policy, every American should be offended with it. Mm. You're talking about the wounded warriors who've got legs gone, arms gone, they got RSD, they got arachnoiditis. I'm in touch with a lot of them. And they're telling them they can't get four Viking in a day? Uh, hmm. That's what you're telling them. They'll just croak over these peptides. Yeah. Well, now, do you, so do you I, think I, that I, a lot I, of those I, guys, do you think a lot of those guys, you know, we, we hear about, about of, uh, a lot of suicide. Do you think perhaps some of those, maybe even more uh, of the percentage of those guys that have severe pain or, or committing suicide because of the no question. pain? Uh. One of the things that stimulated me to stay in this, business. I'd come out of the Army and I was in the public health service and running a public health clinic there in Los Angeles. And I had a very decorated uh, Army officer and I started taking a lot of Army guys, uh, military. Oh, I would take Navy and Air Force too. <laughs> you didn't have to just be Army. I, I, I'd stay down a little bit. I didn't think so, but anyway, the, uh, I had this fellow and he, he was a highly decorated soldier, uh, got up to field rank, opened his ranch in Montana, had a lovely wife, and he didn't need a lot of opioids, and he'd come down to Los Angeles, and I'd treat him. And then I got a telephone call on a Christmas day, and he ran out of his medicine, and he decided that he and his wife would have a double suicide. He shot himself, and then, or shot her also, or he she did shot her. So double suicide, because he ran out of medicine, couldn't stand the pain, and he was a hard, he was a tough guy. Uh, he'd been in the wars. I knew those kind of guys, served with them. And I said, if he'll commit suicide, anybody with pain will commit suicide. And I've seen it ever since, right to this day. Mm. Okay, so yeah, and don't let's not kid ourselves. When you start hearing about veterans committing suicide, I bet you if you went in there and could get the data, I'll bet you'll find a high percentage of those people are pain patients who just can't take it anymore. Mm. And shouldn't have to take it, in my opinion. Mm. That's, that's uh, very sad. Thanks for sharing that. You bet. So, we we you have a, a great number of books. Uh, here's uh, all your books, and you actually do have one on uh, uh, Howard Hughes. That's 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 fascinating. So Howard Hughes, JFK is your latest one. Uh, you got the one on Elvis. Now you actually. Uh, testified for Elvis's doctor. What what did you have to uh, testify uh, for Elvis's doctor? What what happened there? What happened there was when he died, people, as you know, uh, loved Elvis. He was an icon. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of like, well, our hero, it's going to be somebody's fault. And so they wanted to charge his doctor with murder, mm. a voluntary manslaughter. And they hired an attorney who was the attorney who convicted or prosecuted Nixon in the Watergate. 
a guy named James Neal, mm. and he needed an expert to come in and say what happened to Elvis medically and whether his doctor was a criminal who should go to prison for life. And the doctor absolutely was not responsible for his death. Uh, the doctors did what they could to try to help him out and even deal with his addiction. So anyway, I came and testified in his criminal trial, and the, and the jury incidentally found the doctor not not guilty of murder in about 10 minutes. It was a terrible travesty uh, America in the sense that this, uh, but, but you saw it right back then, uh, uh, anti-opioids uh, in the law enforcement and trying to say that if somebody died of an overdose or, and they didn't really, I have an overdose, he died of a terrible heart attack, he had a terrible heart, uh, but they wanted, since he had opioids in his bloodstream, they wanted to blame the opioids in the bloodstream for his death, but it didn't have anything to do with his death. And we have that today, even. So uh, that's what happened with Elvis's death. But he was also a very, very sick man, and uh, uh, he was lucky to make it to age 42, to be honest about it. Wow. If his doctors hadn't really done everything they could for him. Now, what's interesting, one doctor was blamed for all of Elvis's problems. Do you know that Elvis had 12 doctors? Wow. I didn't know. Yeah. All in Baptist Hospital, all top specialists, they didn't know what was the matter with him. His diagnosis was not known scientifically at that time. Mm -hmm. He had this Eilers Danlos syndrome, and they had no idea what that was and never heard of it. In fact, it hadn't been described yet. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, at any rate, uh, that's the substance of, of Elvis. Uh, okay. Tragic case, great man, uh, but uh, and a lot of blame that was thrown around that didn't need to happen. Definitely. But if you go back, you know what I said before, there's something about opioids, oil and water, that societies can't deal with. There's too much controversy. Okay? I mean, look at this controversy over climate change. Okay. And oil and water right now. So we're right in the middle of fights over water, opioids, oil and gas. You can't get people to agree, and you can't get people to treat each other civilly over it. So it's a, it's, it's a sad commentary in, in, in society. And Mike, uh, all I can say is let's keep, let's keep working, okay? Absolutely. Don't give up, okay? No, no, trust me. I, I Just don't commit suicide. Let's keep looking. No, I, I, I got to be honest. I came close a while back a few years ago, but I just said to myself, you know what? That's not you, Mike. You're a fighter. You've never been a quitter. And I just had to reach down in deep inside and grab onto the warrior will and embrace it with all that I could. And I'm not giving up. I'm, I'm fighting to the end. So I appreciate your help. And um, we're going to look into those polypeptides. And I've also got an appointment with a new doctor. So maybe he can help me out with that as well. And um, we're not giving up. We're, we're, I'm a fighter. Also, stay a little hostile. It'll keep you alive. <laughs> <laughs> That's I'm true. I agree with that. I'm a tourist. No problem there. <laughs> well, yeah, it's good, Mike, that you've stayed alive because you brought all this out to the public, and that's it's been uh, many, many people have watched these shows, so that's very, that's very good. So people are becoming aware of this problem, and uh, you know, I had no, I had no clue, and now I'm, I'm really, I'm very knowledgeable in this now. I feel now, 
And uh, thanks to you, Dr. Tennant, because we've uh, we've gotten some really good insights from you today, and I appreciate that very much. Oh, one thing I decided to do, uh, this Amazon has been a godsend for some of us who need a place to publish and write quickly. Within the next three weeks, I'll have a new little handbook on Amazon called uh, uh, Treatment of uh, Adhesive Arachnoiditis 2023. I'm going to make a little handbook for patients. Ah. Five or ten bucks, whatever Amazon holds you up for. But make it to get in there the polypeptides and also these new things called regeneration hormones to get information out there right now. And like, I'll be happy to come back and we'll go page by page, yeah, whatever. Because well, this is something you know, to keep an eye for. It. And also, just so everybody knows, in addition to the three books that uh, Michael Jiggle here was mentioning, uh, Dr. Tennant here also has a couple of other uh, books about arachnoiditis. Um, uh, one of them, the uh, Intractable Pain Patients uh, Handbook, or is it the uh, Handbook for Intractable Pain? And then we also we have another one for arachnoiditis as well. Yeah, we'll put the uh, we'll put all those uh, books in uh, the description box. Uh, his uh, his whole work that's on uh, Amazon, and also the uh, arachnoiditishope.com. Uh, yeah, fantastic. Yeah, that's that thanks to you, Mike. Uh, shows like yours in which we got this technology to get word out there to people and these new getting stuff published quickly. Uh, it's been great. I mean, I, otherwise you can't get this information out to people. That's right. Yeah. yeah. But thank goodness we have these communication ability. So I'm writing as fast as they say, writing as fast as I can. That's beautiful. Yeah, we look forward to that next book. It's going to be uh, it's going to be very insightful. And uh, Mike, if you if you try the the peptides, uh, it'd be kind of interesting to see what your take is on them. Oh, absolutely. I, I'm going to try and get on that as soon as possible, and uh, we maybe we can do a show on that as well yeah. as the results I'm having. And I just want to say thank you both so much. Forrest is I've been Forrest has been working with me for a while, and He's uh, just, just his help alone has been a lot of encouragement to help me stay in the fight, which is always helpful. And uh, he's the one doctor out of so many that's uh, actually uh, given me some good direction and uh, some things to look into. And, and he, the one doctor, I mean, I tried, I, I took me three, four years trying to get a diagnosis for, for adhesive arachnoiditis here in Florida. I couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Even tell radiology, a specific read. Uh, on my MRIs for for arachnoiditis, and they said, well, we can't say that you have it, but we can't say that you don't. They wouldn't commit either way. I had to go to the world's leading expert in, in California across the entire nation to get diagnosis. So just that alone has been a huge help. Forrest uh, is just fantastic, is whatever doctor, every doctor should be, is, which is a doctor that is there, he cares about and wants to help patients, and he's just had an amazing career and helped so many people. Cannot thank you enough. And Michael... Thank you so much for, for having us on your venue to get this word out because it's all about trying to get the information out there to help as many people as we can. So I just Absolutely. say, bottom of my heart, thank you both so much. Yes. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate right. it. Good luck to you. Thanks for what you're doing. Thank you so much for listening to Unleashing Intuition Secrets, the podcast. Until next time, stay in the love vibration as you continue your journey to become the master of your reality. Oh,